Uh, there was persecution that was taking place in the city of Jerusalem. We're about five years into the, uh, to just past the resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? And, uh, and so the church has been growing in Jerusalem. There's opposition to that, okay? Uh, there's physical persecution, all right? And so what happens is uh, a lot of the early Jewish believers begin scattering out. The, they use the word scatter uh, in, in Acts chapter 8. The people begin to scatter out into Judea and into Samaria, now, Samaria is a city that Jews didn't really go to, okay? And so it was kind of a, a cultural faux pas to go and to be in Samaria, but there were a group of these uh, young Jewish Christians that went to be uh, in, in the city of Samaria, and they started to see that God was doing things and that the gospel was beginning to take root, that there was a need. And so the deacon Philip, who we int- were introduced to last time we were together, answers the call, and he's the first short-term missionary that we see in Scripture. And so he goes, and he goes into Samaria, and he begins to preach the gospel, and people begin to hear it, okay? Now, the, the, the fascinating thing about Samaria is that the people there are um, of a mixed Jewish descent, okay? They're, they're half Assyrian, and they're half Jewish. And so they had kind of a, a, a mixed ethnicity, but then also a mixed religious background. And this is why the Jews didn't have any interactions with the the Samaritans. Um, And we'll talk more about that as we get further along. So it was a huge decision for Philip to go to Samaria and to emphasize preaching the gospel to a people who culturally the Jewish people had no association with. This was purely a decision that was made based on what Jesus Christ had done by tearing down that middle wall of partition. All right, and, and, and draw, drawing all men to himself. And the important thing that we need to understand about Acts chapter 8 and what we're going to see is that this is a transitionary period where the gospel is beginning to go out into the Gentile nations, people that God hadn't really emphasized up until the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see is how the gospel begins to spread out into the Gentile peoples. And Samaria is, a, is kind of a bridge, a stopgap into the Gentile people. We're going to pray real quick, but I do want to point out our message today is the going meets opposition. Okay, the going meets opposition. And the thing is that any time that the message of Jesus Christ reaches a people, there will always be opposition to it. That's the thing that we need to understand. There will always be opposition. You go into your schools, into your workplaces, uh, to your friend groups, and, and God starts to use you, and the gospel begins to take root, that is going to, opposition will meet that. Satan is not going to lay down, okay? He is going to stand directly against you, and he's got, he has his own plan in mind, his own agenda. And so we're going to be talking about that today uh, as we move forward. The particular opposition that Philip meets here is a counterfeit religion, is a counterfeit faith, it's counterfeit spirituality, spirituality. it's a forgery. And we're going to talk about that today. I don't know, I mean, all of us come and encounter with, like, forgeries all the time, don't we? Don't we? Okay, so my man, Miles, works at a jewelry store, okay? At his jewelry store, they sell Rolexes, okay? They sell Rolexes. And so, probably at this point, Miles can probably spot a forgery a mile away. Yeah? You see it, and you know it. And you probably just have to be quiet about it. 
Because people who, people who wear bootleg merchandise, okay, they don't like to be called out on that. They, they, they tend to not like that so much. I remember when I was in high school, um, I used to go to a barber shop in Blue Springs, okay? This was a black barber shop, okay? Uh, and so, you know, there's a culture that goes along with that. And this particular black barber shop happened to sell bootleg Jordans out of the back of the store, okay? So, so fake knockoff Michael Jordan tennis shoes out of the back of the store, all right? Now, I did not personally buy any of those shoes because I knew better, okay? But a lot of those suckers that came in there for a fade ended up leaving with a pair of $50 Jordans that were not authentic, okay? And it was only a matter of time before that barbershop, like I remember going to get a haircut. I showed up, and the barbershop just was not there anymore. <laughs> it was gone. It was not there. And uh, so... People, people know a forgery, okay, especially after you've encountered truth. And that's what we're going to see today, is that the counterfeits that existed in Samaria no longer stood up in light of the gospel. Now that people had truth, they, were, they no longer could stomach the fake. And that's, that's really powerful, and that should empower us in terms of our gospel message. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you this morning. Uh, Lord, we trust you for this time. There's a lot of ground to cover, and I'm, I'm really not sure how much of it I'm going to be able to get to today. So, Lord, I just trust you, and I trust what you're going to lead me to share. God, I, I pray more than anything that what we do look at today from your word would impact our lives, and that we would walk away convicted, more sure uh, of who you are, uh, more sure of what your word says, that we would be confident and, and uh, full of faith, as it concerns the doctrines of your holy book. Thank you for writing us a letter. Thank you for making our faith sure. Uh, we need that. Lord, we're so ignorant, and we do fall for forgeries. We need something to compare to. We need, we need truth to compare to, and your word provides us with that. We could trust it. It is the authority of our lives, and God, it makes everything else just look so uh, frail and, and weak, and uh, the things of this world do grow dim when we look at your word and we know you for who you are. So help us this morning uh, to be more sure than when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so in Acts chapter 8, verse 9, that's where we're going to pick it up. All right, Philip's been preaching. All right, he's been healing people. And what we, we're left with in, in verse 8 is that the people are celebrating the coming of the gospel. The people in Samaria have joy. They have joy. Let's pick it, pick it up here. Let's go ahead and, and move to the, to the next slide. In verse 9 it says, But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the, in the same city used sorcery. Used sorcery. Uh-oh. Sorcery. Like, like Harry Potter stuff. Okay? So, I could gloss over this. I'm not going to. We're going we're gonna to hit pause here. Yeah, th- this guy is practicing witchcraft. Now, before we, before we talk about witchcraft in Scripture and, 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 and create a context for that, I want to point out, point out that, that Fisher Bustos practices magic. <laughs> Brian Bustos' son practices magic. Now, now, listen to me. When we talk about magic, there's two different types of magic that we're talking about. Okay? Now, the kind that Fisher practices... Okay, is an illusion. 
right? I don't know if you guys are familiar with like Arrested Development. When they, whenever in Arrested Development, they tell Job that he has magic tricks. Like he makes sure to, to clean that up, right? We'll, we'll clean that up. But he's like, no, 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 no. They're illusions, right? They're illusions. What, what Fisher Bustos does is illusions. And they've practiced many hours. Now, I think if I'm correct, though, he's kind of foregone. He's over the magic illusions. And now he's, in, <laughs> and now he's into uh, Nerf guns and origami. That's his new thing. Okay? He likes origami. Um, and I, the reason I know this is because whatever Fisher does, Shepard, my son, wants to do. So, like, Fisher's coming out of his Pokemon phase, and Shepard's, like, got his book of Pokemon cards, and he's just looking at me, and he's like, Fisher doesn't like Pokemon anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I spent a lot of money on those cards, so you've got at least six more months of liking Pokemon. Okay? We can't afford to follow whatever Fisher's doing, all right? So there's, there's, there's a, a, we're, we're familiar with illusions, right? Uh, but there is absolutely magic, the, the black magic, okay, the black arts. That is a thing. That is a thing in the world. It has been and continues to be a thing. And so here we find a sorcerer. A certain man called Simon, which before time in the city, in the same city, used sorcery. Simon the sorcerer. And you know, uh, Simon throughout history has been referred to as, as Simon, uh, of, uh, Simon Magus, okay? meaning like magi. You guys are familiar with the, the, the phrase magi because the magi, the three magi that came to visit Christ, these weren't wise men. They weren't kings. We portrayed them in many different ways culturally. These were magicians. These were sorcerers, okay? And these men practiced astrology, okay? And, and they would read the stars to gain insight, esoteric insight, all right? And we know about the Magi. The Magi, the first records of the Magi date back to, to the 5th century BCE, okay? So they've been around, and they, they practiced astrology, all right? They practiced divination, they practice sorcery. Now, so here's a working definition for sorcery. Sorcery is the art and practice of exercising supernatural powers through the aid of evil spirits. That's what it is. Now, like, for those of you who are here this morning, and you're like, and you're not, maybe you're not a believer, maybe you're not a Christian, this is like, oh my gosh, what is, the, what is this guy talking about? What is this guy talking about? I knew that this is what church was like. Okay. So bear with me. Bear with me here for a second. The tradition of the Magi um, has had an extensive influence in the world throughout all of history, including early Gnosticism, right? In those first few centuries following the resurrection. Okay, the, maybe you're familiar with the Gnostics. Many of their texts still exist today, okay? And this kind of approach to spirituality has a hand in many, many religions that exist even today, okay? Now, I'm not going to put all those faith systems on blast this morning because some of y'all don't have a stomach for it. But I'm telling you right now, there are major religions that people are practicing even this morning. We're at the very upper echelon of the religious order. I need more water. I just spit a bunch when I said that. At the very upper echelon of the religious order, 
uh, they're practicing sorcery. And you, you don't have to do much research to find that out. Right? I mean, Taylor would say an amen to that. Taylor was a mason. Okay? Which originally probably was like a boys club. Like, let's kick it with the boys. But as you move up in masonry, okay, and you move up into that boys club, things start getting weird. And I'm telling you, there are a lot of religions like that today. Now, some of you know, a few years ago, Uriah and Blade and Dan and I went on a missions trip to India, and we were in in an area called Rayagada. And at the time, at the time, the, the, the major god, Hindu god that they worshipped in Rayagada was a god called Juggernaut, okay? Sounds like Juggernaut, for those of you who are into Marvel Comics, that is a character, okay, who fights Spider-Man at one point, and, well, okay. It's, but but this, is a, this god um, is a very unassuming god. Uh, it's got a big smiley face. It looks like Felix the Cat, okay? And... Um, just five years earlier from when we got there, they were sacrificing babies at the feet. In this developed town, they were sacrificing babies to this God. And I'm telling you, all over the world today, um, people are still practicing witchcraft. They're practicing the black arts. We make light of it in America. We make light of it. We think it's silly. Our Hollywood celebrates it. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's a real, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. I mean, just uh, in, I believe it was in uh, Brazil last year, the president of Brazil was going to a witch to get insight and foreknowledge for ruling, ruling the nation of Brazil. You understand? Korea, too. So this is a thing. So let's, for a moment remove ourselves from our Americanization of Harry Potter and all this business and culturally recognize that sorcery and the black arts are, are a, have influence all over the world, all over the world, and here in America. It is absolutely true. We see sorcery in Scripture. We see sorcery on display against Elijah. I don't know if you remember this, but in 1 Kings chapter 18, there are sorcerers that go up against God's man. Okay, Jezebel sends her sorcerers to go toe-to-toe with him. Right? This is the story where the fire comes down from heaven and scorches the sacrifice. Right? We see it among the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, we see sorcery in Egypt when Moses confronts Pharaoh's priesthood. Remember that? Exodus chapter 7. And we see sorcery and divination taking place in the plain of Shinar at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. It's, it's throughout Scripture. And it always, it always is the same. It's always the same. Okay? Sorcery is always about, this is key point number one, sorcery and divination are nothing more, nothing more than illusions of power used to draw men away from the one true power. Sorcery and divination are nothing more than illusions of power used to draw men away from the one true power. Okay, so what I mean by that is that in light of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the black arts, sorcery, 
look about as impressive as Fisher's magic tricks. Okay? Which they are, they're fairly impressive to me. This is the only magic trick I know. Magic. <laughs> Magic tricks. But, but for real, in light of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, sorcery and divination look about like this. And we see that. We see that here. So let's, let's look further on at Simon and who this man is. Here we encounter a man who practices sorcery and has built quite the following. Verse 10, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God, in re referring to Simon. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. You know, it's just like Satan to try and snuff out God's work in its infancy, isn't it? So here we go. We got the gospel begins to spread, and Simon, Simon stands in opposition to it. He is the other side of the spiritual situation, right? So perhaps Simon was established in Samaria in order to prevent the spread of the gospel. You know, Satan established Simon as a great one, a great one, in order to rob the attention from the work of the gospel that was beginning to take root in Samaria. And it was working. It was working. The people had endorsed Simon as the great power of God. They believed it. Simon was used to mislead the people, convincing them that his power was of God, and in so doing, deceived them in order to keep them from believing the truth of the Word of God. So here's key point number two. Let's draw a parallel between divination and, and, and magic and sorcery and this idea of bewitching. What does bewitching mean? Bewitching just means deception. That's what it means. Bewitching means deception. I, mean, I, I wanted, for those of you who are old and watched old Nickelodeon like reruns of Bewitched, I, I want to do this right now. You ever watch that show? You and me. Yeah, we know. She did that with her nose. The show Bewitched. Familiar with that? Okay, whatever. So bewitching, let's talk about it. Bewitching is any work that subverts the glory of God. Okay? Any work that undermines the glory of God is bewitching. So in today's world, we see many subverters. We see many people working at bewitching. False teachers. False teachers everywhere we go. Okay? We are in the... We are in the age of what I refer to as ubiquitous expertise, okay? And what that means is, is that everyone thinks they know everything about everything. You know why? Wikipedia. <laughs> you think I'm joking? I'm not joking. I'm being dead serious. People think they know everything about everything. You don't know something because you know how to Google search it, okay? All right? You don't know something because you can get on the internet and look it up. 
And so what happens is in the, in the age of ubiquitous expertise, we are in danger of finding false teachers. And we cling to false teachers because what we do when we're looking for a false teacher, we're looking for someone who will tickle our ears, who will tell us what we want to hear. And then we fall prey to it. And the outcome is just a polarized, divide, like nation and world of people. Just divide, completely divided because everybody's truth becomes their own. We have false teachers everywhere. They're all over TV. And some of them call themselves Christians. We have, we have televangelists who are deceiving people into giving them money. We have, we have, we have teachers. I'm, I'm telling you, like in, in India, speaking of India, there are pastors that are just rising up among the ranks who are greedy, teaching false doctrines, giving people uh, false hopes, okay, and becoming powerful. They're not any different, not any different than a witch doctor in a village, hoarding, hoarding power to themselves. There are false teachers everywhere. There are false gospels everywhere. In postmodernity, there are, there are false gospels everywhere. False hopes, false expectations, misleading truths. People convinced that they're going to heaven for fill in the blank, for any number of reasons. They think that they're good and they're deceived. False movements, experiential movements, intellectual movements, heresies everywhere we go. The people are bewitched. We live in a bewitched nation, just like Samaria. Subverters that present themselves as the power of God, but at the end of the day are nothing more than deceptions intended to cloud people's view of forgiveness in Christ. 1 John 2.18 says, Little children, speaking of the, the end times here, little children, it is, that, it is the last time. And ye have heard the Antichrist shall come. Now, This next part is super important because we're inundated right here. Even now, are there many antichrists? Antichrists, plural, many antichrists. That was true in the first century. That's true today. Deceivers. Antichrists. Whereby we know that it is the last time. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Okay, this is, a, this is an end times context that we're reading about here. Many people would suggest that we are living in those end times. And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness and unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of truth that they might be saved. So we're talking here about the Antichrist, the final Antichrist, the satanic power, powerful entity that will rule during, during the tribulation. But what we learn here is that his primary work is to deceive the people. To keep them from believing the truth. What does it say here? Because they received not the love of, of the truth that they might be saved. See, antichrist, subverters, deceivers, always work to do the same thing. 
to keep people, people from seeing the love of truth. Now we see the emptiness of Simon's religion. See, he had no plan to reform their lives. His magic, the things that he did, the things that he did to impress people, what was his end goal? He couldn't reform their lives. He couldn't bring them purpose. All it was, was religious observance. It stood alone by itself. It had no beginning, it had no end. It was a bottomless pit for the soul. It did nothing. It didn't move people. It suspended them. See, religious deception is that way. It's always a prison for the people. It's always a prison for the masses. That's what religious deception does. <clears throat> and you're, you're lying to yourself if you don't believe that religious deception is all around us and everywhere. And it was true in Samaria. You know, we are similarly deceived. We associate power. We associate power with wealth. We, we, associate, we associate truth with authority. And they're not always congruent. So here's a key question. In what ways have you been bewitched? In what ways have you been bewitched? If you look at your life and you assess your life and you consider all of the truths that you carry, which ones are going to hold up in light of the judgment seat of Christ? Which ones are going to hold up in light of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Which ones stand up? Which truths? You know, every, like this, okay, guys. I, this whole hashtag my truth thing has got me bent. It's got me so furious. If I catch any of you hashtagging my truth, I'm coming at you, okay? You don't get your truth. In light of the gospel, there is one truth. And all other truths fail in light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, they fail. Have you been bewitched? Have you been deceived into believing anything that, is, that anything in life, anything, is more powerful or precious than the blood of Jesus Christ? Anything. Your job, your career, your workplace, the people you know, your relationships, your school, your future plans? Are those things more precious to you, more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ? If so, then we have fallen for nothing more than an illusion. It is no different. It is no different than Simon, and it is no different than Fisher's magic tricks. We've fallen for it. Let's look on, verse 12. But when they had believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Key point number three, the greatest enemy of deception is the simplicity of the gospel. Okay? The greatest enemy to deception 
is the simple truths of the gospel. You know why? Because the gospel holds up. The gospel holds up. Truth holds up. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world to die for our sins. For that, history knows. History knows it. The proof is there. He died for us. He rose again. It is incontestable. And that truth destroys all deceptions. You know, by Simon's magic arts, he deceived many. But deception has no match for the authenticity that came with the miracles of Philip and the power of the Holy Spirit. People saw right through the magic tricks when they saw the miracles. You know, miracles are always better than magic. And listen to me. And the authority of God's power always overthrows Satan's deceptions. Always. When the people saw the difference between Simon and Philip, they quit Simon. When the people saw Philip and they heard the words of truth, they found Jesus. They found Jesus Christ. Now I want to to pause here for a second and I want to make a note of something. Quitting deception is not easy. Did you know that? It's not not always easy. And and I want to say this especially to our growing leaders. Listen to me. When people are coming out of a lifestyle of deception, you know, someone who's 18, 19, 20, 25 years old, and they've grown up in deception, religious mistruths, okay? Cultural cloudiness, traditions of men, okay? Oppressions, addictions, ways of living that they've grown up with. We have to be careful not to assume that that person, just because they get saved in the moment, is going to be completely different the next. You know, Paul writes to, first, or to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and he says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. We're going to come encounter and encounter people who on a daily basis oppose themselves. In, in, in any number of ways, right? I mean, maybe they oppose themselves because they struggle with depression or, or anxiety or insecurities that they've grown up with. Maybe they struggle with family members. Maybe they struggle in relationships with people. Maybe they struggle with some sort of oppressive sin. And we have to make sure that we stand patient with them, instructing them, prodding and provoking them to righteousness. But ultimately, as this passage tells us, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. See, people have to recover themselves from their sin. And that takes time. And your job as a discipler, a Bible study leader, a ministry leader in this, in this congregation is to encourage people to stand there with them, instruct them, and help them deliver themselves from the snare of the devil. And that, my friend, requires meekness and patience. It does. And people, they're going to frustrate you. You're going to think, man, I've said this thing to them so many times. Why are they not growing? I'm not seeing them make this hard decision. Ah, friend, as long as they're showing up, 
and their face is turned towards the gaze of Jesus Christ, then you stand with them in patience and meekness. Because quitting, quitting, quitting deception, it takes time. It takes time. Do you understand? So be, be patient. Be patient with yourself. You know what grace is? You know what grace is? Grace is when Jesus Christ extends to us favor that we do not deserve. We did not earn it. We don't deserve it. And he extends it to us in love. It's a gift. And some of us, we've received the grace of Jesus Christ, but on a daily basis, we get really frustrated with the fact that we've been deceived and we have a hard time quitting our deceptions and we don't extend the same grace to ourselves that Jesus Christ does. Be patient with yourself. Trust Jesus Christ. Over time, the simplicity of the gospel will erase those deceptions. It'll erase those deceptions, but it requires patience, requires fervency, it requires a dedication to truth. Let's see. Yeah, we've got, we've got time. We're going we're gonna to look at verse 13 here. Verse 13 says, Then Simon himself believed also. Hmm. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, before we get too far in the story, because we're not going to be able to complete the story today. I'm not going to get that far. I'm realizing that now. That's okay. We'll come back to the story next week. But listen to me. This is very important. It says here that Simon believed also. Now, what this story proves out to us is that Simon did not accept Jesus Christ here. Simon did not truly repent. Simon believed also. Yet his belief neglected repentance. And repentance is crucial to salvation. It says, Simon believed also. Yet with his belief came ulterior motives. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. Good job. You believe intellectually that Jesus Christ came and died for your sin. Okay, you believe that in your mind. He says that the devils also believe and they tremble. So congratulations, you believe. So does Satan. Belief alone isn't enough. An intellectual belief is not enough. There has to be a heart repentance. There has to be a humbling, a turning away, which leads us to key point number four. True repentance has one motive. One motive. To be right, in right standing before the living God. That's the one motive of true repentance. And there is no salvation unless there's a turning. Unless in your mind and in your heart you turn away from the deception towards the truth, there's no salvation there. It is necessary for you to repent. Simon was clearly motivated by the unexpected folding of his re religious business venture. Okay, so listen, Simon had it good. Simon was a sorcerer. Everyone respected him. He had a foothold in the Samaritan community. He probably, he probably had a strong business enterprise where he would do foretelling, practice witchcraft for people, and he probably had a decent income. Everyone thought, remember, everyone thought he was the great one of God, right? And so when he sees this and everybody's responding to Philip, what else is he going to do? He sees an opportunity Okay, he sees an opportunity here. 
Simon's philosophy was, if you can't beat them, join them. He couldn't contest the gospel. He couldn't contest the power that Philip had. If you can't beat them, join them. So he makes a false confession with the intent that he might find new enterprise among the new spiritual powers that be. Now, before we get into the heavy lifting of verses 14 through 17, there's some pretty heavy doctrinal stuff there. So I'm, I'm going I'm to hit pause right here. Can we do that? Are you all right with that? I don't want to get into that because once we do, we'll be here till 1, and I'm not, I'm, I ain't going to do that to you. So, so hear me for a second. Let's, let's, let's focus our attention on this idea of deception. There are many of you in this room who've gro- grown up in a religious setting. Okay? And maybe, maybe for the very first time in your entire life, you're beginning to see through that. Maybe it's in the testimony of other believers. You're seeing that their walk is different than yours. The way they believe is different than yours. And what you're recognizing for the very first time is that religion is not going to be sufficient for you because it's a prison and it's a deception. And what you need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you see that. You see that in the testimony of other believers. The same way people saw it in the testimony of Philip. And it is time, it is time for you this morning to turn away from deceptions of the past and turn towards God. And I want to invite you this morning during our worship time here as we close to, hit, to, to, to get up and have the boldness to come and talk to one of our Bible study leaders about that and to pray with them and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the very first time because your eyes, the scales have fallen off your eyes and you're beginning to see Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by him. And you're seeing that for the first time. Others of you, others of you are saved, okay? And you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, but through, throughout time, your attention has been robbed. You've been bewitched. You've begun to focus on other things, things that are getting in the way of, of really following Jesus Christ with everything you have. And I would invite you the same way. You need to come and talk to somebody. You need to pray with someone who loves you and cares about you and is willing to work through that with you. But listen to me. Deception cannot remain. It can't. Because if you choose, listen to me, this is how it works. I know how it works. If there, are, if there is some sort of seed of deception in your life, there's a thing that you're holding on to that's a distraction from Jesus Christ, and it's in your life. And you're trying to ignore it. You want to be here. You want to be present. You want to be following Jesus Christ. You, you, want, to, you want this but you're holding that seed of deception. It's only a matter of time before it begins to grow and you're gone. And we will grieve your loss. You will go. You will disappear because you will begin to serve that deception. It's only a matter of time until you disappear. Okay? You've got to root out those weeds. You've got to do away with them. Because in time, what we want is we want the truth of God's word to grow in your heart. We want the gospel to take root. Because in that is power. In that is power. 